Hunters and Unicorns is a podcast that tells the story of the most successful executives within the security and high growth software companies. 30 Blade Logic sales execs have gone on to become CXOs in the top 100 fastest growing software companies. Is this a remarkable coincidence? In this special edition series, we investigate the secrets behind the greatest success story in software sales. I'm Simon Kutis, and I'm joined by my co-host, Oli Kune. Hey. And we are delighted to welcome Jeff Lortz. Jeff, welcome. Thank you. Welcome, Jeff. So, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. So, Jeff, you're currently Chief Operating Officer at Tomia, which is part of the Vista Equity Partners uh, company. Can you tell us a little bit about Tomia and your role there? Sure, absolutely. So um, I am the, the chief operating officer of Tumia. Tumia is a, a brand that was created uh, at the beginning of 2019. Um, Vista, you know, uh, purchased a company called uh, Telerex in uh, in 2016. You know, it's a company that provides you know enterprise software into the tier one telco carrier space. Fairly complex, you know, solutions. You know, uh, you know, a lot of heavy lifting in terms of system integration, right? To deploy those solutions, integration with complex network switches, et cetera. Vista's plan was to kind of improve the operational capability of that company and then use it as a platform to acquire, you know, new assets, right, that they can use to sort of uh, leverage EBITDA growth and, and, uh, and make a value play um, with, uh, with that company. I joined in early 2018 as the chief operating officer, part of the, you know, an overall renaissance of the, uh, of the management team. And uh, my responsibilities, you know, include, you know, professional services, customer support, all of the sort of customer facing functions like customer success. We have a, uh, a hosting operation because we have a SaaS product. I manage the, you know, the SaaS operations as well. Um, and then have some responsibilities in the area of business operations and sales ops, as well as I'm really sort of uh, sort of the right hand man of the, of the CEO and helping with. Um, you know, operational planning, business planning, you know, governance, you know, uh, and internal communication. Uh, in early 2019, we bought, you know, a company based in Israel called Star Homak that was actually twice as large as Telerex um, and worked over the course of 2019 to integrate the two companies together. Uh, once we completed that merger, we actually created the brand Tumia, right, as a, as a combined entity and, and went to market with that brand uh, in early 2019. Sure. Now, the topic that we're talking about today, uh, Jeff, you're obviously very passionate about this topic. Um, it's almost as though every time we talk about this, your face kind of lights up, lights up and, you know, it fills you with pride to see the success that this group have actually had. Why is that? Um, I, think it, I think you guys are really on to something because I, I do think it's a, an amazing uh, set of circumstances and a great story um, because it's a story that actually repeated. You know, we started, I think, the journey at a company called PTC. It was uh, at that time known as Parametric Technology. Uh, and Parametric Technology was in the, the mechanical design and automation space. So basically, you know, CAD CAM software, if you're familiar with that, they sold to manufacturing companies and really had a, uh, a software that revolutionized mechanical design, um, introduced a completely new uh, paradigm of, of designing things you know, that are mechanical in nature, right? called solid modeling is what they, they invented. Right? And they were upsetting the market you know, with this new technology. 
And, you know, they were doing it, you know, faster than any of their nearest competitors. So it was really an opportunity to kind of uh, figure out how to take advantage of that leadership opportunity uh, and scale, you know, a company globally as fast as you can possibly scale it uh, to gain as much market share as possible, you know, during that period of time. And they, they did it in a very, very successful way. So the, the challenge was really about scaling a distribution channel that was, you know, I would say fundamentally 100% direct, you know, there was you know, attempts to, you know, to facilitate a channel model in sort of the mid-market and lower market, but really the success was really in their ability to sort of drive scale in a, in a direct, you know, uh, selling model. And uh, it wasn't just how they scaled, it was, you know, the, all of the, the things around scaling, right, that made them successful. Uh, it was the methodology, it was the people, um, and it was uh, the way they led, you know, their, their sales team that really made it uh, super successful. And it became almost a formula. Um, and as, as we sort of got to the, the late 1990s and, and uh, into the sort of the, the dot-com bubble, you know, uh, you know, a number of folks, you know, uh, started to, to leave the company uh, to go. Uh, they were attracted away to become, you know, millionaires and zillionaires. Great <laughs> dot-com companies. Um, and the, you know, the team started to dismantle a little bit. The growth of the company had started to flatten out. And, you know, I, for one, did the same thing. I left in 2000 to join a company called Bow Street, which at the time was, you know, on the cover of Red Herring. And it had all of the, you know, the, uh, you know, the glitz uh, associated with, you know, a company that was going to uh, make it big. It was a, a software that nobody actually knew what it did. And that was probably our, our strategic advantage um, because everybody... It had so much glitz around it that people bought it just because everybody else was buying it, not because they knew what it actually did. So there was a lot of that going on. So a lot of the, the folks that sort of built and managed and grew PTC started to disband and to go off and you know, use what they learned in, in different careers. And uh, there was very few uh, companies that I would say at that time that more than a couple of PTC people went to. We all kind of went in our different directions for the most part, um, whether it be you know, sales leaders, you know, I was more on the operational side and professional services, but we're close, you know, tightly you know, bound to the sales team. And everybody kind of went off in their different ways. And, and it was really in 2001 when the, when the bubble burst, as you, everybody recalls, and there were some fairly lean years, right, you know, uh, after that for the high-tech community. And I think it was just interesting that about eight years later, seven or eight years later, the band kind of got back together again at PlayLogic and, uh, and really took everything that we did at PTC uh, and use it as a model with a company that had a similar sort of footprint in terms of its was upsetting the market, you know, with a with a new technology. It was kind of a greenfield market opportunity. There was some competitors, right, that actually made it a more robust market in a way, and had the same challenge. Let's let's build a global direct sales team, right, that scales efficiently, right, and allows us to hit, you know, growth numbers, you know, in a predictable way, quarter after quarter. And yeah. uh, everybody came back from all of their different experiences, you know, smarter and <laughs> better and probably a little bit, you know, fatter, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and we did it again and, uh, and had a great success. Do you think it would be unfair to say that both of those businesses, just because the technology was so good, would have achieved that anyway? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I, I think because I've been involved in companies that have had, you know, similar um, market opportunity and sort of competitive position. Um, but they lacked a strategy, right? Which I, you know, I think that you have to give some credit to the people, right, for the strategy, and then execution on the on the selling and delivery side. So I, I, I do 
think that um, those things are important to have, or it makes it a lot easier. Right? But I think you can do it, you know, with with the right team and with the right methods, right, and with the right leadership. You say it was repeated. You know, it was started at PTC and it was repeated at Blade Logic. But actually, I think the story is much bigger than that because if you were to look at any kind of ranking of software companies, kind of any any kind of analysts that look at the rankings of organizations, you'll struggle to find organizations that are not led by one of these CXOs or that have been influenced by someone that's within this group that we're obviously talking about. So the legacy, the impact of what we're talking about isn't just about one group of people having success at PTC and then 10 years later, the same group meeting again. We are talking about repeatable success again and again and proven sales methodologies and strategies which have been which have really been honed and improved over many many years and and have repeatable success yeah absolutely i mean there's no question about it and some of those companies i'm sure are you know don't have as compelling you know a competitive position or or a strong market right as we did at both blade logic and ptc so i i would agree the credit goes to um you know the people and and i think you know, the way, you know, the way they developed, right? I think, you know, I, I look back at PTC in my own career and, and I, you know, that seven years that I was there, you know, formed my, my management capability for, to a great extent. And, and I learned you know, the foundation of my trade uh, there. And I learned it, you know, in that environment, which, you know, I've been able to sort of take and, and adapt over time. But they're all the same way. They were all, they were all built. They're all young. Everyone was young. Um, most of us didn't know what we were doing in terms of we hadn't done it before and we we're every step that we took along the way was a new milestone. Um, and we had a few senior people, right. And I, and I think back to those days, and I think of, you know, when we, my organization moved under the CFO, you know, for a number of years, I worked for a guy named Ed Gillis, who was a very seasoned you know, CFO. I think he'd come from Lotus. Um, and he just an amazing you know, business thinker uh, and taught us so much, and, you know, myself and my peers running, you know, the professional services organization. And he, he taught us a lot about how to run a business and how to make good decisions and, and was a great mentor. Yeah. But fundamentally, we were making stuff up as we went along. It was just the creativity of, of smart people working together as a team um, and building <laughs> something and continuing to test it and evolve it. And, and uh, it worked, right? Yeah. I think everybody took it away as the, as the foundation for how they operated going forward. Yeah. And so on, on the subject of talking about your earlier career, and I suppose just to give the listeners a bit more you know, insight into your earlier part you know, and, and, and your foundation. So you graduated at university with a mechanical engineering degree. You then went on to the Navy, joined the Navy for seven years, worked your way up to officer within nuclear power. Obviously, your technical roots are you know, very different to a lot of the other people within the list and the people that we're talking to. But you know, how important was you know, the Navy in, in shaping your career and you know, the early stage in, in creating you? Oh, it was, a, it was uh, fundamental. Um, and it actually was very beneficial, particularly at, in a culture like PTC's culture, which was really my first job out of the military. So... I mean, everybody knows that the military enforces discipline and builds character and does all of those things. And I would say for me, I was not a, I was not a confident young man um, in college. You know, I was um, probably on the shyer side, um, didn't really know where I wanted to go with my career. I ended up joining the military when I, 
when I actually figured out what a mechanical engineer does every day. I was very confident that I wanted to be a mechanical engineer you know, when I went into college, and then I realized, wow, it's not really that interesting. Um, so you know, I, I sought out you know, the opportunity in the military because it was a way to apply you know, an engineering degree to something that seemed a lot more exciting, which is you know, running a nuclear power plant on a ship or something. So that, that's why I took that path. And, uh, you know, I left military with no real marketable skills, you know, commercially other than, you know, I could drive a really big ship and I could <laughs> operate a nuclear power plant. So those are the, those are the tools that I brought to, to, the, uh, to the market, you know, not very, not very marketable. Really. <laughs> For sure. Um, so I, I really, I really stumbled into high tech. I, I ran into uh, you know, one of my colleagues, well, I shouldn't say colleagues, classmates, right, from my mechanical engineering degree. Guy named Pete Terrell. Pete was working at uh, PDC as a, I think he was probably a district manager at the time. I ran into him somewhere in the Boston area, and he said, "Hey, you got to come to this open house. Um, we're having it over at Waltham next week, and this good stuff going on there. This company's on fire." <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I showed up, and uh, they were just doing mass interviews at this open house, and they interviewed a couple people, um, and they made me an offer to join as a uh, professional services consultant. I had almost no marketable skills or capability associated with that, but they were just scaling and hiring and they were just looking for people who look, seem like athletes, right? So if you hire a good athlete who's smart, you know, maybe we can form them into something that will be for us. <laughs> and, I, and I did have a mechanical engineering degree. We did sell our software to mechanical engineers. So I guess there was a little bit of, you know, opportunity there for me to add value. But, yeah. uh, you know, I started out um, just as a, billable consultant on a team implementing the technology with customers. You spend most of the time on the road on customer sites, you know, uh, billing, our, you know, billing hours to, to, uh, to make revenue. And I was promoted to a manager, a team manager position probably within six months of that. So I, I've been uh, an individual contributor in my career for about six months total, I guess. Um, wow. And, and from there, uh, because the company was scaling, I think anybody who showed any, any type of, uh, you know, leadership skills or management skills or upside, right, in terms of their ability to kind of step up into another role, got the opportunity. They just gave, you, gave it to you and you and see, see how you did um, because we, we needed managers to step up and we were just continuing to kind of fill the bottom, you know, with, with people who we were scaling the services organization, you know, just as fast. So we needed, we needed bodies to go out and do this billable work and we would just you know, build a team and then it would get so big and we split it and put a director on top and it, that's just the way it kind of scaled up, right? So every every year or year and a half at the most, you know, I was getting an opportunity to take a you know, bigger team or, or a different kind of subset of our organization. Um, and there was three or four of us, right. That kind of exchanged jobs. You know, we, we took turns doing different jobs and, and every year we kind of reorganized, you know, the business and had a you know, different sort of view of, of the, uh, of the business and uh, continued to, to grow and get big. And by the time I left, I was a senior vice president. I had over 600 people, you know, working for me around the world. 150 million dollars worth of revenue responsibility, and all for knowing sort of nothing coming in, right? So <laughs> yeah, that, that the, you know, it was just an amazing opportunity to sort of form, you know, the basis of a career. And that speed in growth, we had it in our previous conversation, and we were talking about it, which is this pyramid growth um, scheme, which yeah. you know. It, it's referred to as six and split, building up small, you know, small teams of six, 
where did that originate from? Was that was that PTC? Was that John McMahon? And why was it so effective in in a growth strategy? Yeah, it was PTC for sure, um, and and it was we you know, we didn't even you know Blade Logic you know we didn't even get that far right and right. got acquired by BMC. Yeah. So we were we were implementing it and and you know we were using it as the way to kind of you know show our growth um, for the before the IPO and the and the acquisition. But PTC, we did it for years and years, right? And it proved itself out over and over again. And you know, there was two aspects of it. One was, you know, you, you bring in the right people uh, at the at the bottom. Typically, we hired very few managers, you know, in as managers from the outside. I can't remember ever doing that. Yeah, uh, they were all built from the bottom up, um, and you know, you were you were mentored by your manager who had your job not that long ago, right? You know, potentially, um, and you you know, the, they were given the opportunity. Right, uh, given the territory and given as much training as you could ever ask for, um, and giving you know, given because of the low ratios they, they kept, there was it was always a focus on making sure a manager had enough time to mentor all of his people. Right, so it wasn't you know one to twelve, it wasn't one to twenty. Right, it was one to five or six. When I got to eight, we'd make a new manager. Right, so the manager was always really engaged, you know, with the you know, with the new people. Right, that were starting to build their career. You'd give them a certain amount of time. If they can't, but they couldn't make their quota, and they probably weren't going to be around for very much longer. I mean, and it was pretty cut and dry, right? You get, yeah. you're given all the opportunity, and if you couldn't cut it, then you know they cut, they cut bait pretty fast. Yeah, uh, it was even, <laughs> there was a joke that you know if you, if you finish your second quarter in a row, we didn't make your number. You, you didn't really have to be told. You just go pack just up, walk out the door, <laughs> clear your desk and get out of here. <laughs> wow. Wow. And, and do you think there was, because, you know, we've had lots of conversations now and there's certain traits which make good managers, some people, you know, exceptional salespeople, but it's not necessarily the exceptional salespeople, the exceptional individuals within that team that are overperforming, et cetera, that go on to be the managers. Um, and there is definitely a, a type of profile, somebody that um, was described to us as somebody that is outside the limelight, doesn't necessarily need to be front of stage. You know, what sort of traits was it that you, you know you saw that were common traits that those individuals were being promoted into management? Yeah, I mean, I think you you can you can tell um, when someone's got you know some inherent you know leadership you know capability. Uh, I think it was also a cultural thing where it was it was just strongly encouraged, and I think people felt rewarded by you know uh, by moving up because. There's a lot of, um, you know, a typical salesperson, and I, and I know many since leaving and working at other companies, you know, they, they just, they're mercenaries. They just want to sell and they want to, they want to make their quota and they want to exceed their quota and they want a great comp plan and they want to do it over and over and over again. And they want to build their base of business, right? So that next year it'll be even easier. You know, they don't want to have a different territory every year. They don't want to, you know, become a manager and potentially not have as much, you know, compensation upside. But in, in this model, you know, you were... Uh, not necessarily financially rewarded, but you were rewarded with stature and you were rewarded with being part of a bigger team and people wanted to be promoted. And it's, I, you know, you don't really see that in a lot of sales organizations where people really are eager to get to the next level. The other thing that they did was you moved around, right? So if, if you were uh, willing to step up into a management role, um, there's only so many managers in, you know, in Boston, right? <laughs> so, so if you want to be a manager and the guy next to you is, wants to be a manager, someone's going to have to move to Cleveland. Uh, and they did it, right? People were moving around all the time um, and doing tours of duty and you know, overseas. Most of the top executive, you know, salespeople 
spent at least a year or two, you know, in either Japan or in Singapore or in, uh, uh, in Europe somewhere, uh, et cetera, uh, running the business or taking some key role, right, in another geography. So everybody, yeah. everybody gets scrambled around and, you know, you learn so much, right, you know, selling into different cultures as well. But it was just made them all sort of very well-rounded, you know, sales executives. Yeah. Yeah, I think Dali, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I think Dali Rajik is, is quoted saying, you know, be careful of those that have not achieved anything outside of work. You know, when you actually look at the group, every single one of them have, have achieved remarkable feats outside of work. And you included, right? You know, we've looked, you know, some interesting things you've done, such as the Wounded Warrior Project, Boston um, Cares, the Pan Mass Challenge, do you recognize that as, as, as a common trait? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, part of the, you know, part of the attributes of the people that are successful in this model is just a desire to win at, all, at almost all costs, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you don't, um, and that's why I think, I think a lot of the, the salespeople who uh, step up to become managers do it because, you know, they want to, they want to, um, they want to succeed. They want to win. They want to win at a bigger level. They don't want to just make more money next year. Um, yeah. And, and I think that that's, you know, the case for myself as well, right? You know, I, you know, I've, you know, I've, uh, I've joined some, a couple of, of uh, dog organizations <laughs> along the way, but, you know, not as, you know, companies that didn't really have as good a prospect of success, right? And you realize it quickly that you're not in a winning culture um, yeah. and either you create one or you move on and try to find one. And to me, that's the most important um, attribute, right, of an organization is, you know, desire to win, right? And, and to do whatever it takes to, to get, you know, to the, to the finish line um, yeah. and first. <laughs> you know, if that doesn't exist, then I think, you know, you're, you're not going to have the same kind of results. And these guys all, you know, had that sort of competitive drive. For sure, for sure. So you, you, you spent, you know, a few years after PCC bouncing around to a few doggy companies um how relieved were you when you found blade logic uh i was very relieved and it was it, it uh it came kind of came out of nowhere uh, and it came at a good time because i yeah. you know i was i was in a, a situation that wasn't you know a, a winning culture um for sure and uh you know i got a call from from john mcmahon who was running uh sales and services at, at blade logic uh, i had not previously heard i guess maybe i had started to hear about it there was some buzz because you know a lot of my former colleagues and people in the network were starting to to uh, talk about it, or I was hearing things about it, so it wasn't a complete surprise to me. But it was very early on, and I didn't know that much about it. You know, he needed someone to to you know run, I'll call it just customer operations and pre-sales, right? Um, as they were starting to scale, and the company was you know less than thirty million at the time uh, in revenue, and it was um, uh, you know very very unsexy technology. It you know it uh, basically you know, server automation, right? So in the, in a world at the time, you know, uh, there were a lot of servers being provisioned in the world, you know, there's a lot of data centers being built, you know, things were, you know, that we're starting to see, you know, it wasn't quite cloud services starting to develop, but there was a lot of, you know, compute power being deployed in the world, you know, to support, you know, sort of blossoming business applications. And at the time it was more you know, big ERP systems and things like that, but there were a lot of, uh, you know, companies and outsourcers that, that were building big data centers and just a lot of equipment right, being installed into data centers. And all that equipment needed to have operating systems deployed on them. It's called bare metal provisioning. So you take just the, just the equipment and then you put the first layers of software 
you know, on it, which is called the bare metal provisioning process, which includes the, you know, the kernel and the operating system and the bare stuff. Um, so what Blade, Blade Logic did was automated the deployment, right, of, you know, the bare metal provisioned uh, software. And then, and then afterwards provision helped with the system administration, you know, you know, managing patches and keeping all of the servers at the same kind of configuration settings and uh, being able to sort of, if you wanted to make a configuration change to one server, you might have a thousand of them. You could push those, you know, those configuration changes out, right, to all of your servers with just press the button. So it was, it was kind of, you know, not that sexy, right, but it was something that had a really good, solid ROI and the software was good. And, yeah. and you know, these guys figured out how to sell that value proposition, how to talk to, you know, someone completely different than talking to a mechanical engineering manager, right? You're talking to IT, you know, system administration types, you know, data center te technicians, right? Very, very different and much more technical kind of conversation. But they, you know, they figured out how to, you know, determine what were the four or five kind of key differentiators, how to talk about those differentiators, yeah. how to, you know, translate those differentiators into capabilities, right, that the customer can see value for. And that's really the formula, right? And once you have that, that cookbook, right, just training people on how to talk about it, who to talk to about it, and then how to leverage your, your manager and your manager's manager to get connections inside these companies. Yeah. Um, and, and um, you know, it was repeated and just, uh, it just worked. Yeah, and this was an interesting part, right? So you know, Blade Logic was then acquired by BMC for, for what? 800 million in 2008, which was you know, at the time a fairly modest acquisition at best. Um, but because Blade Logic were a smaller company, it, it was quite a remarkable story, right? You know, what, what actually happened on that acquisition, you know, and can you talk us, talk us through that? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, so BMC Software is a mm. company based in Houston, Texas. It started as a mainframe, you know, software company. So they they even probably till this day have a pretty good mainframe division, believe it or not. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they, the rest of the, the company was built on acquiring, you know, technologies and kind of consolidate, consolidating them into a portfolio. So their, their anchor uh, product was a product called Remedy and they had acquired that, you know, probably four or five years before Blade Logic. And then they acquired Patrol and a bunch of other tools, but it was basically all the tools that an that a CIO would need to buy in order to run his shop. And that would that's really what BMC software was. So companies mainframe based, you know, was their sort of heritage. Houston, Texas, so Midwestern, South Southwestern company, much different kind of clock speed, right? Than Boston based, you know, venture backed, formerly venture backed, recent IPO, all former sort of lead eating, you know, uh, PTC salespeople kind of running the business. Uh, you know, very, you know, very aggressive management team, right? You know, David Acharya is a very, very aggressive guy in terms of you know, kind of how he ran the business and, uh, and held people accountable. So, so the, the mix of the cultures was, uh, you know, was quite, you know, odd, right? Initially. Yeah. But I think what, what, what BMC realized, and we actually, the, the acquisition closed uh, during the sales kickoff. I don't remember what year it was now, but we were at a sales kickoff event at the, at the Opryland Hotel in Nashville, it was a thousand people there, right? From BMC, and it was in the middle of that one-week sales kickoff that the actual deal closed. So in the middle of the week, we went from being a Blade Logic employee to becoming a BMC employee. But all the while, we were just mixed up with everybody. Um, and during that period, um, you know, there's all kinds of you know big events and presentations, and the and the uh, the guy, the CRO of BMC, you know, made his sort of keynote address. 
And then after his keynote address, um, a couple of other key people spoke within the sales organization and John McMahon was one of them. So they gave John to get up and introduce himself and introduce Blade Logic. And after his, you know, fourth or fifth F bomb, um, <laughs> uh, people started to go, who is this guy? And now all the Blade Logic people already knew and we were like cheering for him. But, uh, about six or seven weeks later, John McMahon became the CRO of BMC software. So they figured it out pretty fast that there was a big difference in sort of the, you know, sort of the quality um, and capability, right, of, of the Blade Logic sales team compared to the sales team that was kind of hobbling along, right, you know, at BMC at the time. So McMahon took over, and of course, you know, what he does is he takes all of his former Blade Logic guys, and then he goes and hires even more, right, because now we've got a bigger sales team. He goes finds even more former PTC guys and brings them in and populates the entire you know, globe with senior former PTC people running, you know, kind of key leadership positions in each part of the, the world, right? And filling it in with even more, right, if you can. And that, that became the new fabric, right, of the BMC sales organization. And he did it in probably a year and a half. It's a remarkable story. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a great story. And actually, yeah. one of the things that you will notice, you know, one of the things that we do notice is the ability of these guys you know, every single one of these CXOs, their ability to scale businesses very quickly, but it's their ability to change culture, uh, the sales culture within organizations within weeks and months. Never seen anything like it. And we've experienced it firsthand working with clients where we've seen the difference before a kind of a blade logic, app dynamic, PTC guy was in. And then after, they're able to completely transform the business from top to bottom. And it's just absolutely remarkable. Mm. It is. And I think it's partially, you know, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to train them, right? They already know, they already know the drill, right? They know how they're going to be asked to lead. Um, they know um, exactly what the accountability uh, environment is going to be like. Um, and they know each other, right? Um, in, in this case. So it's, uh, it makes it a lot easier, right? Um, because everyone's already kind of have, have, has read the, uh, you know, the textbook, right? And yep. has passed the test and knows exactly how they're supposed to do it. Um, and they're, they're, they're comfortable, they're comfortable exercising it, right. And actually operating yep. it. And then you can, at that point you can, you can hire people off the street that don't know anything and then you can, you can enable them. But what, what was difficult at BMC and some, some got on board, but most, you know, faded away is some of the former BMC folks became and are now, you know, potentially on your list, right. You know, they, yep. they, they converted, right. They became, they became blade logic people right through learning and 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 working with some of these other guys they drank the kool-aid um, <laughs> they learned how to adapt and some of them were more senior people that that you know had been selling a different way or managing a different way their entire careers and they they changed right and they figured it out and they adopted it sure so so obviously before we started the research for this uh, for this podcast um, we always thought that medic was the key component but actually what we've quickly discovered is that medic by itself isn't enough you know having a good playbook is important you know that's the only way you can scale your businesses and having a method but actually there's a lot more to the story and i think this is what the realization that we've had more than anything so what what do you think is needed to make a playbook like medic work well i mean if you just want to pick on on medic and qualification which is what it is uh, we used something similar to that of one of my, you know, non PTC blade logic, you know, 
know, companies. We had it. We had it. We had it built into Salesforce. You couldn't move an opportunity from one stage to another unless you checked all the boxes, right? Of medic or medpick, whatever it was at the time. But if you don't have the discipline to actually disqualify or requalify, then it's useless, right? So um, I think it's not really about the methodology as much as it is about how you operate the methodology, and and having sales discipline um, is something that you know um, I've not. I've, I've seen it in action and I've seen it not in action <laughs> uh, yeah. in three cases. And, and you can take the same exact you know, qualification methodology and sometimes it'll work brilliantly and sometimes it just won't because it's just not operated properly. But sales discipline is not something which is found in ex- experience. Actually, you know, just going back to what you said about PTC hiring you without any real experience, if you were to kind of reflect on most of the organizations that this group have kind of taken over and had success in, they are very, very specific in the type of traits that they look for individuals. You know, most organizations look for, organization, for, for individuals that are going to hit the ground running or can ramp up really quickly. But actually, the Blade Logic guys, they scale companies faster than anyone, and yet, experience is a lot lower down the list of what they're looking for. They're looking for character. They're looking for the ability to be moldable. They're looking for intelligence. And I think, you know, just reflecting on the point you just made, medic isn't enough, but it's that trait. And actually they're very, very specific in, in, in what, what you guys are specific in what you look for when you are scaling your teams. Right. Yeah, I think so. And I I think, you know, uh, you know, I think that, these guys, you know, we did a, we did a good job at it, right? And and it was part of the culture, right? Was to was to find, you know, we we used to just call it athletes. Like, you know, <laughs> finding a good athlete is better than finding you know, a, a learned scholar. Um, in some <laughs> cases, uh, because you know they have you know they have desire, right? And they have skills, right? But they may not have experience, uh, and that's okay because we can because of the way the model is constructed, you're never really out there on your own, right? There's always a way. There's such a huge investment in training and willingness to continue to, to, to train and educate um, and discipline around training and then having, you know, uh, a span of control for managers that you know, allows you to actually you know, be in the business of your, you know, your young athletes. It's, uh, it allows you to mold them, right, in the right way versus trying to change somebody, right, who's already, you know, has a certain mindset, right, and operates a certain way and isn't comfortable, you know, changing if you look at Dali Rajik, he's got a very specific uh, kind of measure that he looks now in his recruitment strategy, which is he uses an acronym called ICE, um, Intelligence, Character, Coachability, Experience. Mm. That seems to be quite a common thing. Again, is that something that was really evident and very purposeful at the beginning at PTC, or is this just an evolu- evolu- evolution over kind of the, the, the three phases of the three iterations of this kind of strategy? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was purposeful at PTC because we spent we spent a lot of time, you know, you know, doing the hiring is is step one, right? Doing the training is step two, and then it's doing the constant assessment, right, of how that person is is transforming, and then making you know making determinations of whether they're going to make it or not, um, and making them like as early as possible. So it's it sounds a little cultish in a way, but it was really about you know ensuring that we really understood the psyche of the person. You know, their, um, you know, whether they had, you know, men- mental blocks that were going to keep them from kind of getting to the next level, whether they had the desire to get to the next level, whether they, whether they had fear that they weren't going to get to the next level. Those are the sort of attributes, right, that they, that they kind of focused in on, not necessarily, 
you know, how good is his elevator pitch or how yeah. strong is his demo skills or, you know, whatever the case may be. It was, the, it was those other intangibles that kind of separated just a salesperson from someone who's going to you know, make a difference, right? And end up being, you know, a CRO someday potentially. Mm. So yeah, if we were to kind of recap on your career, right? So Royal Navy hired into PTC entry level. You became regional leader within seven years, responsible for around 600 people, bounced around, ended up at Blade Logic, and within five years, you found yourself kind of VP of global services. Was Everbridge natural progression for you, or did you have to kind of adapt and change to take the next step? Yeah, not, not really. I mean, I thought, so I think where I had to make you know, changes, you know, for me. So I, I think of like my time between when I got out of high school to when I left PTC is like the growing and development years of my career. Those are, that's, that's when I really learned how to do my, you know, what I do. Right. And it was after that, you know, those years in which, you know, we all kind of scattered and, you know, we all had different experiences and I worked for, you know, companies that were in different technology spaces, different sizes and, you know, the technology, were high tech wasn't that great, you know, during that period of time. It was okay, but it wasn't like it's, it is now or was, you know, back in the in the late nineties. And you know, I, I look at those years as when I had to really adapt, right? With when I when I learned what my weaknesses were, you know, where I needed to shore up. You know, I learned, you know, when I left PTC that my military sort of style, you know, having sort of a command and control type of kind of management thought process worked pretty good, right? Because we had that type of culture there where it was acceptable. I went to this company, Bow Street, which was, which was, you know, a very, very, a much more liberal, you know, culture, much more about sort of communication and feelings. And (laughs) it was, it was so foreign to me that, you know, I struggled, right, as as an effective leader, uh, because I didn't have those skills, right? I didn't, I didn't recognize them as important. um, And I didn't try to develop them really right away. And, and I didn't do as well. You know, the company did horribly, you know, faster than I did horribly. So it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, but we, you know, I, I took that as an opportunity to learn and, and discover how I can evolve, right, as a manager and as a leader, because it's, it's not just one way, right? And, and just because it worked at one place doesn't mean it's going to work, you know, everywhere else. So when I joined Everbridge, it, you know, in the first really three years of my time at Everbridge, it really wasn't any different. It was just another company right that I had the same job at which was kind of running customer operations and starting small and trying to build it for scale and it was it was during that period of time where I had it's just I've always had a strong desire to do more than just be sort of an operational professional services leader right and and until the middle of my tenure at Everbridge I was that right and and I I ultimately you know, made the decision um, and, and talked to the CEO and asked him for his help in kind of expanding my responsibility, you're learning new things, getting involved in, in things that are beyond just sort of, you know, the, you know, the customer ops stuff. And he gave me that opportunity, but if I hadn't asked for it, I never would have gotten it. Right. So, so it was, that was kind of a turning point for me where I, you know, I felt kind of stale, right. And, and what I've accomplished and what I was, where I was going and he gave me the opportunity to do more stuff. And that's what got me, you know, to the next step, you know, for sure. It was, you know, building my resume with, with things outside of just, you know, running a professional services P&L or running customer support. You're talking about taking that step up to strategy, <clears throat> right? So moving away from more of an operational kind of mindset, I have to deliver this for my clients to, okay, let's, let's think about the bigger picture. I mean, that's yeah. not a natural 
it is a natural progression, but a lot of technical people struggle to make that step up. How is it you were able to make that step? Um, well, it was with a lot of support. So, I mean, I was, I would say my role was more like the chief of staff okay. of CEO. Um, you know, I had some other you know, real responsibilities on top of that, but you know, he, uh, he didn't go out of his way to mentor me. Um, but because I was sort of, you know, you know, doing a lot of the things that he would normally be doing, I got a chance to learn and he gave me good feedback on what he wanted and what he didn't. Um, and through that, you know, I got some really great you know, experience. And it was a really strong management team as well with lots of, you know, smart people with a ton of experience that I learned a lot from when I worked, you know, with them on their particular part of the business. When I worked with the, the guy who ran SaaS ops, for example, you know, he was, he's a guy who's done this forever and knows everything there is to know about running a, you know, a hosted, you know, operation and build data centers and amazing guy. I learned so much from him. So I was able to just get in a position and a set of activities that just allowed me to learn more. Um, yeah. Rather than just focusing on my stuff, you know that I'm I'm good at. I know, right? And just trying to to execute efficiently. So it was it was a great opportunity that um, that he gave me. Um, and then getting involved in a lot of the M and A. I mean, at at BMC, uh, we did we did a good bar, a bit of M and A, and I got involved in a lot of the due diligence and and the integration processes. But with Everbridge, you know, I got to get involved more upfront in sort of the business development piece as well. Um, so how we evaluate prospects, how you build a pipeline of acquisition candidates all the way through the due diligence and you know, structuring deal. So that was a, that was a great experience as well. So were you able to actually influence the sales strategy there? I tried. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I think just to, to a great extent. I, I mean, I think um, I was able to influence, you know, some of the mechanics of how we sell. In other words, what, what's our value proposition? How do we position this product? You know, uh, you know, what are the things that we want to try to, you know, capitalize when we compete, you know, with other other vendors for the same business? But as it relates to the methodology and kind of how the team was managed, all the things that are in that kind of PTC model, it it, uh, it frustrated me a little bit because I I so much wanted to embed some of the those things into what we did, but the you know the the leadership it just wasn't their style, right? So mm. I, I you know they were successful despite that. You know, so it's not the only way to do things, but uh, you know, it was a frustration a little bit for me because I felt like we could have done so much better if we had some of those, at least some of those elements implemented. And that's that's the example I use where we we had we had medic uh, implemented mm. in Salesforce. And it just wasn't just wasn't used very well. Mm. So well that, spending, yeah, do you think that would influence a decision on on your next moves and what happens to you next? You know, if if a company embraces that, would it be, you know, would it be more of, more of interest to you? Well, I mean, to be honest, I'm hoping that my next move, I'll get to decide. You know, nice, nice, <laughs> good. <laughs> if you were to look at the kind of top 100 software companies, most of them probably have a playbook like the one that we're talking about. Um, you know, in most of them, there's some sort of influence from. The PTC, Blade Logic, AppD people, or someone that's developed under their leadership. So, you know, we are talking about a very, very significant impact that a very small crop of people. A lot of it probably comes back to John McMahon, who's you know, who's, who's probably you know the thought leader of a lot of this. But again, what what role does the COO play in in all of this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think I think the COO role is a is a very loosely defined one, you know, yep. you know, so from one company to another, the, this, the, um, the span of, 
responsibilities, I guess, from one CEO to the next is quite different. Even within the Vista portfolio, you know, we, we meet, you know, all of the CXOs meet, you know, every year at a conference and for workshops and best practices. And I'm in a, a COO kind of subgroup, even within the Vista portfolio, the differences in responsibilities are quite varied, right? But it's, it's mostly focused on customer operations. So COOs are a lot of times interchangeable with CCOs, you know, today. So it's a lot about customer success and customer operations. And typically it spills over into other parts of, um, you know, what we call business operations or sales ops, right? So it's really all about, you know, sort of the efficient running of the organization. So uh, as it relates to, you know, to sales, you know, there's a, you know, there's a process component, there's a data component that the COO oftentimes manages that really facilitates improved sales performance. You know, in, and as the, as the COO, you're typically in sort of a role where you're sort of the right-hand man of the CEO or maybe the counterbalance to the CEO, um, uh, you know, helping the CEO sort of see more clearly what's happening operationally within the company, right? When, when they're more focused on strategy and sort of investors and kind of external, you know, um, stakeholders. So I think, it, I think you can have a lot of influence, right? Um, whether it's under your direct responsibility or sort of inherent in, in your role because you're touching so many parts of the business, right? Sure. So, so there's kind of three components to you, really. So you've obviously got the very, very deeply technical sides, okay? You've got the commercial acumen to be able to really translate technical issues but more from a value proposition and you've got the kind of a general kind of intelligence which has now allowed you to kind of evolve and reinvent yourself do you think that these have been kind of the key components which have helped you to continue to kind of scale up the ladder and break through that glass ceiling yeah i think so um i think the one thing that um, you can't ever really fake is you know uh, carrying a bag right having a quota and you know, living as you know, uh, a quota-carrying salesperson or, or manager, you know, within the you know within the go-to-market function. So that's that's an area that I think you you can be you can rub shoulders you know with with those guys, and and that's that's how I've operated, and I've had some you know, responsibility for building my own book of business with inside you know these companies. I'm responsible for getting my own professional services business and making sure that I'm influencing the sellers right to help support that. But, you know, that's, that's, a, that's definitely a missing component, right, for me, right, is, you know, actually being on the front lines and, you know, and, uh, and, and owning a commercial relationship with, with a customer or driving a new commercial relationship with a customer. So I think that's, to me, that's, that's one area where until you've actually done that, right, it's something that's sort of not present on your, on your credentials, on your resume. So, so obviously you... you- you enable you're part of the sales organization but not necessarily part of the organization you're the one that's that's kind of patching up or making sure that obviously the value is realized of what these sales guys are obviously going out so you kind of get a slightly different perspective because in in a way you're not necessarily in the trenches but you can obviously have a, a kind of a bird's eye view of of that do you think that's a that's an advantage it is for sure. I mean, I think it's even, it's even more than what you described. It's um, in many cases you're the you're the product, right? So, uh, or at least a big part of the product, right? So, or a big part of the solution. And you know, you you in, in many cases, or I say myself, my organization has has objectives that compete, right? To some extent, you know, with the sales objectives, right? They're you know, they're, they just need to get a deal, 
I need to deliver something at a, at a profit margin. Right? So, so there has to be like, you know, in many cases, I don't want to say an adversarial relationship, but in many cases we're, we're a counterbalance, right. You know, to the, to the sales team, we support them. We're, you know, we're the, we're sometimes the brains, right. Of the outfit in terms of, you know, how do we form a solution um, and make the customer comfortable, right. That we can deliver. Um, and then we have to deliver afterwards. Right. And you know, we're held typically to a profitability standard where the sales team hardly ever is. Right. You know, as long as they can get, you know, the purchase order or the contract signed, you know, they're going to get, they're going to get their commission check. Right. So, so I think being able to, you know, to be, to be that counterbalance, but still be a partner, right. And be a trust and be a trusted partner of the sales team, I think is probably one of the most critical sort of attributes that someone in my role, right, needs to have. Because I've seen many people fail because they become adversarial um, and then they get, they get ignored, right? They get turned off. Like the sales guys will just say, well, I can't, I can't work with this guy. He's not, he's not gonna help me. Yeah, you can very easily become the police officer, right? As opposed to the enabler. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's the challenge. Yeah, it's, it's, the hardest, it's definitely the hardest part of the job. And, and in the Blade Logic days, and maybe not as much in PTC because it was a little bit more, um, you know, there's just so much business, right? That it kind of was easier. But in the Blade Logic days, you know, because we were expanding, because we were, I was, I was putting, you know, people into roles in parts of the world that maybe weren't quite ready. You know, uh, and <laughs> I was going to mentor them up. You know, it it was, and and these guys were going at 100 miles an hour because they already knew what they needed to do. You know, kind of keeping pace with that was was really challenging, right? And and uh, created, you know, it was a lot of work for me, right, to continue to sort of keep these guys, you know, comfortable, you know, with my organization's ability to deliver um, as fast as they can deliver. And, and that was, that was one of the big challenges there. Sure. So, so if you were to just kind of take a bit of a step back and just reflect on the topic that we're obviously talking about and, and really reflect on the success that this group have had, how would you best summarize why this group have had the success that they've had? Because it's not that they're part of a boys' club. They're not, you know, golf buddies. There's, there's, they've got a formula. There's a lot more to it. How would you summarize that, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, it started with a little bit of luck. Right? So I think PTC was just a special situation, right? And I think that special situation enabled, you know, um, a bunch of smart people, right, to, to try to, um, to innovate, you know, uh, a model that was going to work, right, in that situation. And it just happened to be, you know, a, a very repeatable kind of need in high tech, right, over the next 20 years, right? So in a way, it was, it was a little bit of luck, but it, it all boils down to sort of the, um, you know, the, the willingness and ability of the people who are managing that business at the time to be open-minded, to be thoughtful, to be innovative, right? And to continue to, to not just try new things, but, you know, you know measure and, and determine you know, uh, is it working? Is it not? How do we adjust? What kind of, you know, um, you know, what kind of changes do we need to make? Uh, and what impact are those changes having right on our success or failure? So I think, I think the fact that we were very sort of you know, metrics driven and, and it was a relatively simple model, it wasn't really highly complex, a lot of complex analysis, but it was something that was constantly measured, right? And constantly being adjusted and tweaked until we got, you know, fine tuned results. And I think, I think that, created just a belief, right, among uh, everyone involved that it was totally doable again, right, in, a, in another circumstance and, and should be taken forward, right, in the rest, for the rest of their careers. You know, it, it just became, I don't want to call it a cult, right, but it just became, you know, a, a club, right, that everybody, 
knows the initiation rights too, right? Everybody knows what the rules are, right? Mm. And, you know, you're allowed to go off in your own in your own business and and use it as a baseline and tweak it and change it, you know, to whatever suits the you know the situation. But it's always at the core is the fundamentals are are all there. Yeah. It's like baking uh, a cake. <laughs> Sorry. <Yeah. laughs> There's lots of different ways of baking a cake, but the fundamentals are there, right? Yeah, absolutely. So just to kind of get a little bit behind the person behind this, the, uh, the COO, uh, Jeff. So what is it that really gets you up? You know, what is it that really inspires you? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think that the COO role, like we said, is, you know, so integral to, you know, other parts of, you know, all parts of the organization, whether you're, you know, you're, you own it directly or not. Um, you know, you know, seeing, you know, operational efficiency improvements, right, is what, you know, what we're about. Right. And being able to to measure and understand, you know, uh, where there's room for improvement um, and then drive, you know, programs and initiatives to to improve. Right. Are, it's, it's core to my job function. and I really enjoy it. I mean, I, I like to I like to, to solve problems. And if there aren't enough problems to solve, I like to go find some. Right. To solve. So I, I don't I don't mind doing both. Um, and I think it, that's what gives me a lot of satis- satisfaction is to is to see that improvement. To see you know people you know adopt you know new programs and new initiatives because they do see you know uh, things working better you know changing people's minds about the way they're doing business and, and seeing if they're willing to adopt something new I, I think those are the things that that uh, that I really you know get uh, get excited about and, and enjoy doing nice and so obviously it's a very very demanding job and yeah it's obviously very very strenuous on time and how do you stop yourself from burning out you know do you take yourself away are you able to switch off do you have any special techniques that you use to to, to enable you to do that it's uh it's difficult you know, frankly i mean in, and um and in a global organization especially it's very easy to be up and working around the clock right because we've got you know at any point in time uh day or night just people in the company working right mm. uh, so you could be engaged you know, anytime, day or night, if you if you wanted to be engaged with somebody who's who's actually on the clock. <laughs> so I, I do think it's important, right, to to uh, establish you know your time, especially now when we're sort of cooped up in our in our homes and yeah. a lot of real social interaction, other than staring at our computer. Um, you know, to to call to call a time like what what I do now is like I call a time during the day from from five to seven. You know, I don't do anything, right? I go yeah. for a walk, I go for a run can't go to the gym anymore, but I do something where I can nice. exercise, right? And then get back to it, you know, a little bit later on, right? And catch up on emails and, and do some other things in the evening. So I, I think you, you just have to, you know, you have to block time out for yourself and turn things off and put your phone away. So uh, important. Yeah. Paladino has two phones. He has one which is his personal phone and one which is his work phone. And he uses those so that he can, he can take a step away. But then he did allude to the fact that, his colleagues do have his personal phone number as well, <laughs> but at least he hasn't got his emails on that one. So it did make, it did make the difference. I think sometimes that can play a big, yeah. big difference. What sort of advice would you give to those, you know, aspiring to, to break that glass ceiling? You know, if there was three words of wisdom, words of advice. Yeah, that's a good question. I, mean, I, I think you have to, you have to have a desire to win, right? And you have to know what winning means. Like what, what does winning mean to you? And then be just constantly focused on how you're gonna how you're gonna you know increase the score, right? So you're you know you beat your competitor, right? And, yeah. And, and and you know like what I learned, I I reached a plateau in my career 
I wasn't, you know, winning anymore. I was just, you know, kind of running in place. Um, and until I asked for help, I wasn't going to get any, right? So I, I yeah. think I don't think it's a sign of weakness to say, hey, I, I need your help to get me to the next level or I need your help to find me the next opportunity. Just ask people for help. Everyone's willing to, to help. It's a great technical community. Technology community is amazing. Uh, it's so small when you really, when you really think about it. Um, and it's really tight knit. We, we, you know, I find the same, the same thing within, within the Vista portfolio. I mean, it's an amazing culture as well. Uh, it's, it's very similar to my prior experience in a way because it's just such strong leadership and, and desire to win is just dripping, you know, from the place. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, when you, when you, you put all of the executives in a, in a room, which we do a couple of times a year uh, with the other portfolio companies, you just feed off of their enthusiasm and their drive. Uh, it's just amazing. Yeah. And is the, is the complete Vista portfolio of software companies, does that make you the third large, is it the third largest software company, theoretically? Yeah, fourth largest, yeah. After, fourth. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. So I, I suppose the, you know, the, the, the final question is, does the hunter make the unicorn? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, I think there's a couple of requirements, right? You have, to, you have to have a healthy market. And I, I won't even say you have to have a good product. But you have to have a healthy market. But after that, I think the hunter does make the unicorn. So. Okay. Right. So um, if we were to kind of reflect, Jeff, now looking back at the overall picture, there's a lot of common traits when you look at the individuals that we're referring to as part of this series. This series is obviously dedicated to, that, to those 33. Um, mm-hmm. Much of that legacy obviously started with, uh, with, with John, John McMahon himself. But despite the fact that so many of you have very different backgrounds, you all kind of entered in a very similar way, not really knowing your path, not really knowing your direction, but really having some very, very raw attributes. Um, and if we were to reflect on you know, your experience coming out of the military, taking that experience and using the intelligence, using your ability to be competitive, to continue to reinvent yourself, and yes, you experience difficulties along the way, but you always found a way to be able to, to break through that, whether that was asking for help or asking for support. You're always willing to kind of reflect and continue to grow. And I think that if you were to reflect on the overall group, these are traits that probably most of that group have. So um, I'd like to just say, first of all, it's been great to have you on the show. It's been you know, fantastic to hear your story. You know, you've been a great, a great guest to have on the show. So um, thank you very much for, uh, yeah. for joining us today. Yeah, it's yeah. Been great talking to you guys. Thank you so much, Jeff. Really do appreciate your time. It's been really insightful. And yeah, thanks ever so much for uh, you know, sparing your time to, to do this with us. Can't wait to hear the whole series. <laughs>